Well, thanks, Sarah. Good morning. Welcome uh, to Auckland AV. My name's Rowan. So glad you could join us on this chilly morning as we think through this next section of um, Matthew's Gospel. Why don't we pray together that God would help us to hear His Word as it really is. Lord God, as we come together this morning, there are so many things vying for our attention in the world around us and within our lives. We ask that you would help us to hear this word that we've just read together as your word, that by your spirit you would show us how we might respond and that you might show us where we need to repent and where we need to celebrate the greatness of what you've done for us in Jesus. Amen. Fear is something uh, that every single one of us is affected by. There's fears of rational things, things like heights, right? You slip and you can fall. It's scary. Uh, Someone running at us with a knife, right? That's something to fear if you're in that position and they're kind of coming at you at that moment. Maybe losing a child in a crowded place. You're like, oh, where have they gone? I can't see them. All these fears help us to protect us from clear and present dangers that are in front of us. Then there are those irrational fears, you know, the ones that kind of pop into our world and and kind of don't really make sense, like claustrophobia. Have you ever thought about that? Like the walls aren't actually moving in. Nothing's actually going to kind of get us at that point, but there's something kind of a little bit icky around being in a small space. Some people have fears of blood. I don't know why, what it does. It's just blood. Teddy bears. Apparently, there's a fear of teddy bears, that they're scary and somehow it worries people. All these irrational fears, they, they kind of hinder our lives rather than help us. They, they cloud our judgment and hijack what we're doing and how we're thinking. For me, I think one of the fears I have is of not doing things really, really well. I have a perfectionistic kind of tendency. And so what I do is I think about whatever task that I've got in front of me. The task might be, say, walking along a plank that's like 30 centimeters wide. And I go, yep, I could do that. I could walk along this plank right now. I could do this thing. I could write a sermon. I could um, make this phone call. Simple to do, easy. Walk along the plank on the ground. But what I then do is I go, but this is so important. Like, I've got to get this right. I've got to do this so well that I heighten the task. And so I kind of put this plank that's 30 centimeters wide between two 100-floor buildings. And I go, okay, now I've got to walk across this plank. The stakes are huge if I don't get this right. And so then I kind of stand here and I think I'll do some more research about how to walk across planks or do whatever task I'm trying to do. And I kind of think some more, read some more, listen some more. And then the only way I can kind of walk across the plank is I light a fire behind me called time. And that fire gets closer and closer until it's right here. And I go, I've got to do it anyway. And I run. And the worst thing happens. I do it really well or okay. And I'm like, oh, so I repeat the whole process again every time. And it's really, really frustrating. The things that we fear play such a large part in how we think and behave. They control how we see reality and what matters and how we respond to it. In the last few weeks, we've been hearing Matthew's account of the life of Jesus about the way people respond to what Jesus has to say. We saw in the parable of the seeds last week, Jesus' word go out and the different responses people had to the word. It was all about how you hear Jesus. Those who want to hear, who want to listen, who want to understand the parables, Jesus reveals what the parables are about to them. But to those who don't want to hear, the very same message, the very same parable judges them. It stands as a testimony that they didn't want to listen. The question I want us to kind of focus in on today that's raised in this next section of Matthew's gospel is what causes us to listen? Or what causes us not to listen? Matthew 13, verse 53. 
Matthew continues, when Jesus had finished these parables, he left there. He went to his hometown and began to teach them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. Jesus comes home from his roving tour. And as part of us, it expects a great homecoming, right? Our hometown boys come back to town like the regional football team who's just won the tournament in the big smoke has kind of come back. And you kind of expect people in the hometown to be like, oh, Jesus, here he is. We've heard of what you're doing. It's awesome. You're coming back to teach us. There's this kind of excitement in the streets. People kind of have heard about what's been happening. I mean, they've heard the reports that have gone out about his, his words and his miracles and his works. Here he is coming home and you're like, what will they be like? Will they listen? <laughs> what we find out is there's something stopping them from hearing Jesus truly. I mean... They hear him at first and they're astonished by his wisdom. Then they say this, look at verse 54. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Now, I wonder, is that an honest question? Well, they're actually trying to do something. Is there some sort of fear inside them that means they can't accept what's going on? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother called Mary and aren't his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? And his sisters, aren't they all here with us too? So where does he get all these things? And they were offended by him. So there's something going on in each and every person here, stopping them from seeing what is rationally clear. They've seen his wisdom, his miraculous powers. They're astonished by him, but something's holding them back from accepting Jesus as he really is. Often we think if we just saw Jesus, if we just experienced some of his power, then we'd believe, then we'd have a greater faith. If he just would do this one miracle in our life or speak one word into my life in some powerful way, then I will follow him. But here are people who saw and heard and irrationally chose not to believe. They attribute what's going on to something else. You know, I knew Jesus when he was in nappies. He can't be like this. I knew what he was like running around the place. Someone over here, I taught him in synagogue school. I taught him these things. No, no, this, this can't be, he can't be God the Son. He can't be the promised king. Someone else, he helped make the table that my family eats off every week. This, this can't be him. They're pushing away because they don't want to accept the implications of what it means if these things are from God. One thing it shows for sure that the apocryphal gospels, the, the accounts like the gospel of Thomas that talk about all the miracles Jesus did when, when he was a baby are false, did not happen because they would have been like, yeah, we've seen him grow up. You know, I saw him part the creek out the back. He just stood up and all the waters went aside and off we go through there. Of course, he's kind of God the son. We've known this all along. None of that. They're like, nah, there was nothing like this. Rather than celebrate that Jesus was the promised Son of God. There's something within them, something that they hold onto that refuses them to allow themselves to see Jesus as he really is. What is that? Well, Jesus says to them, a prophet is not without honor, in verse 57, except in his hometown and in his household. A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and his household. They refuse to honor him. Which means instead of honoring Jesus, they're honoring someone else. They're putting someone else in the position of, of kind of making the, the shots in their lives. It's themselves. They're honoring themselves and their own view of the world. Jesus can't really be like this. Even though I'm seeing what's going on, he can't really be the true and living God. What's going on for them is fear. 
If Jesus really is all these things, then it means they have to listen to him. They have to honour him. And I'm not going to honour the boy that I changed the nappy of. I'm not going to honour this person who is calling me to live a different way. I'm not going to honour this Jesus. There's a fear of letting someone else be the ruler of their lives and their world. A fear of losing control. That's why, like the Pharisees in chapter in chapter. 12 of Matthew, they are offended by him. There's an offense. You're calling me to obey you, but I'm offended by you. I'm not going to listen to you because you're calling me to get off the throne of my own life. The facts of Jesus' actions call everyone to the reality that he is king over all. And that he ought to be the king of our own lives as well. And none of us like giving up that position. Maybe for you, the stories of Jesus are stories that you grew up with. They're a childhood family tradition. Maybe you grew up in a house that read some of the stories of Jesus or you had a Bible growing up or your family were Christian in some way. But now as an adult, as you come along, your familiarity with him causes you to push him away. He can't be king of my life. He fits in there with Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and, and, the, and the Little Red Caboose, you know? The books that we read as children that kind of shaped us. He, he's just this comforting story that's there. He's not going to call the shots in my life. I'm not going to get off the throne and let this Jesus that I heard about and grew up with rule me in any way. Let me ask this morning, is it possible that you're suffering from the same fear as those in the hometown of Jesus did? He's a friend, not my saviour. He's a local, not my Lord. The fear of handing your life to someone other than yourself, causing you to irrationally hold something you don't want to give up. We need to hear the consequences here in this passage of, of not hearing, of missing the Lordship of Jesus means that we'll miss the benefits of Jesus. Missing the Lordship of Jesus means we'll miss the benefits of Jesus. Look at verse 58. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. It's not like Jesus couldn't. Oh, you've got me. You don't believe. I can't, I can't do any miracles here. No, it's that it wasn't worth it. They didn't trust. Why, why would he bother? They were so hard-hearted, so strong on sitting on the throne. They missed out on the benefits of Jesus, not only in the miraculous here and now, but in the age to come. Don't let your familiarity of Jesus or your fear of letting God rule your life, disqualify you from the benefits of trusting Him. But it's not just the family familiarity that causes people to miss who Jesus is. But it's kings and their families who also refuse to step off the throne. Look at 14 verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. So we've seen what happened as Jesus went home to his hometown. Now... It's not just the family, it's, it's, it's the king, Herod the Tetrarch. How will the king hear the words of Jesus? Now, when you, you read the Bible, you, you keep discovering that there are lots of Herods in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Which Herod are we talking about and when? And was he alive then and now? And who's going on and what's happening? Um, one thing to note is the events of the life of Jesus weren't just seen by family and friends. They had an impact on kings and rulers of the ancient Near East. See that as you come through and, and work out who this Jesus is. Well, on the screen, I want to show you there are four generations of Herods. Uh, the first one is Herod the Great of Judah. Now, he was the one that we, we hear about in Matthew 2, the guy that tried to kill basically every baby 
But Jesus managed to get through and he ended up killing every child under the age of two in Bethlehem. Right? So that was him. He was the most insecure man you've ever met. I can guarantee you that. He murdered his own wife, his three kids, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law and his uncle because he saw all of them at different times as a threat to his position. And then there's his son, Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee. You'll see him in the passage that we've got today. Now, spoiler alert here. He's the one who beheads John the Baptist. We're going to hear about that in a second. But his brother, Philip, who you can see up there, becomes important a little bit later on because Philip had a wife called Salome, who was actually Philip's niece, if you see the kind of way the whole thing works, who later changed her name to Herodias. See her right there? Yep, I didn't circle her. Sorry about that. But see how she is Aristobulus's daughter, but Philip married his niece. You're like, what's going on there? bit of marrying your niece is not great. But then her name was Salome and it changed to Herodias because she married Herod, as in Herod Antipas, the guy who we're talking about in this passage right here, right now. Like this story is worse than the days of our lives. It's like the days of our lives, right? Days of our, <laughs> days of our lives meets the Hunger Games. That is what is going on with the family of Herod. Then there's Herod Agrippa I. You meet him in Acts 12. He ended up arresting Peter and executing James the Apostle. So he's pretty full on. And then he had a son who he humbly called Herod Agrippa II. Right? And you find him in Acts 25. And he's one of the ones that Peter and the Apostle Paul had to give an offense, a defense to. Now, as you look at this family, you look at it and you go, there is one big fat mess going on. It's pretty crazy. I don't believe in generational curses. I know some Christians do, but I'm not persuaded in generational curses on family lines. But I tell you what I do believe in, generational sin. That's what you've got in this family line, a consistent pattern, generation after generation, that is highly insecure, desperate to keep their power at all costs and highly resistant to the word of God at every point in time. I think sometimes we can see that in our own families, can't we? There are traits of sin that pass on from generation to generation. It might be greed, theft, uh, sexuality, sexual immorality, pornography. I mean, how how many of us have, have vowed not to be like our fathers or our mothers when we grow up, but ended up just like them, or perhaps worse in areas? The reason is, Proverbs 22 verse 6 says it very clearly. Start a youth out on his way, even when he grows old, he will not depart from it. That works for good and for evil. Each of the the four Herods have these incredible fears that evidence themselves in insecurity. Each of them resist the word of God in very blunt ways. And I think it's worth asking ourselves as we sit here today, what are the sins of your family line that affect the way you respond to God? What values have ever been caught or taught from your family that actually are contrary to our Heavenly Father and His character and nature. Be on your guard, because they are the most natural sins to commit, because they've been in our mother's milk. We've grown up with this way of thinking, and we think it's just right. They'll always be our default position. They're the hardest ones to put our fingers on, and the easiest ones to find excuses for, because they just come so naturally. Well, Herod here, is driven away from Jesus by three fears. We'll spend the rest of our talk looking at these fears. Fear number one will be missing out, the fear of missing out. Then we'll talk about the fear of popular opinion 
and then the fear of irrelevance. Let's look at missing out to start with. Matthew 14, verse 3. For Herod had arrested John the Baptist, chained him, put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, who aptly he named after himself after he took her. Man, since John had been telling him, it's not lawful for you to have her. See, Herod's way of living was, if he saw it, he wanted it, and if he wanted it, he took it. And the fact that Salome was his brother's wife and his niece did not stop Herod. He just went, I want this, I want her, I want her in my life, so I will take and I will do. This fear of missing out on on the joy of this beautiful woman was too much for him, and because he was king, he took. I just say, I think it's worth saying this point. Make sure there's no flirting amongst your in-laws. Some of us may be like, Ugh, why, why would we do that? But, but it can be really dangerous. In-laws aren't part of our bloodlines. They're not blood-related, but they're within the family circle. And there's these relationships that we have. And so often in, in, in the church and in the community, you hear of people going off with, well, their brother's spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend. You see it everywhere. Be careful. Don't excuse the sin because it feels good, we take. It wasn't only missing out on pleasure that drove this family. Like Jesus' hometown, the fear of losing the throne of their lives also drove Herod, but it wasn't just the throne of his life he was afraid of. It was the throne of king. See, if John the Baptist was right, that what Herod was doing was, was wrong, Herod was disqualifying himself from being a king and a ruler. And this is where John the Baptist couldn't help but raise his head He's one of the few people in this whole narrative who actually takes God at his word. He doesn't hesitate to call out the king. This is wrong. It ends him up in prison with no comforts, no glory. See, he valued the word of God more than the pleasure of his life. He valued the word of God more than the pleasures of this life. But not so Herod. The fear of missing out drove him to take opportunities he should not have taken, to reject what little moral code he had and silence the word of God through John the Baptist. Let me ask this morning, where are you tempted to let the fear of missing out silence the word of God? You don't totally remove God from your life. You just lock him and his word in a room somewhere behind some some doors, and maybe occasionally go in and check out what he has to say, but, but keep it in private and block it out, but then quickly go on and, and live life to the full, the, 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 the non-FOMO life. Is the fear of missing out causing you to reject the only one who can actually bring lasting pleasure? Where are you worried about missing out? And where do you allow it to push the word of God to the margins? Or maybe for you, the thought of losing the throne of your life, like Jesus' hometown, like Herod here, means you're running away from the true king, the good and gracious king, who's a far better ruler than any of us are. The fear of missing out drove Herod away from the word of God, as did the fear of popular opinion, which is the next fear I want us to look at. Verse 5 of chapter 14. Though Herod wanted to kill John, he feared the crowd, since they regarded John as a prophet. Now, why did Herod want to kill John? Well, because John had been calling him to repent. John had been calling out the sin in his life quite publicly, saying, you got to not do this. This is not right. This is not good. 
None of us enjoy being confronted with our sin, do we? Do any of us get up and like, yes, let's point out my sin publicly today. Show it to the world. What a great day this will be. Like, no, we're not like that at all. One of the classic strategies that we use to deal with messages that we don't want to hear when someone wants to point them out, probably lovingly, is that we, we can attack the messenger. Uh, and that's exactly what's happening here. I don't know what you're like, but I don't, I don't mind being called a sinner. It's very clear I'm a sinner. The Bible says I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. But the moment someone comes along and says, oh, yeah, I think you're sinning here when you said this thing and did this thing. I'm like, how dare you say that? Like it just got personal. Do you feel that? When someone points it out exactly, you're like, oh, and there's this response that comes up within you. Immediately it's to say, well, you do it too. We attack the messenger. I've seen you sin in other ways. So that invalidates what you're saying about me or makes me feel okay about the way that I've done this. We get on the defensive and we blame others. John confronted Herod with his sin. Herod's desire, I'm going to kill you. It's human nature. Surely you felt it when someone's pointed something out, an immediate reaction to want to silence that person. Maybe not physically kill them, but to kill what they said, to remove it from your life. I don't want to know. I don't want to hear. I want to just push it away and live my life my way. How dare you? We need to be so aware of this tendency within us that even the person who confronts us with our sin, even if they commit that sin themselves or, or is, is less than what they should be or ought to be as a follower of Jesus, even though they may have spoken some truth but not all the truth, even though they might have said it in a way that wasn't the most loving way, don't be like Herod and shut down the messenger. We need to stop and let God work through his word, by his spirit, through his people. That's what church community is about. Not to go around and calling out everyone's sin publicly, but to be going around helping one another to put Jesus first. To put his word as the prime position in our lives. That's what we ought to be doing. We want to be more and more like Jesus every day. That means we need to change and it's going to be hard. So when that's pointed out, pause and reflect. What would God want me to do here? What does God's word say about this? I shamed to someone this morning who said, um, they saw me this week driving and uh, that I was stopped a long way from the car in front and the car in front moved and I didn't move forward probably because I was looking at my phone. And my immediate response was, no, 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 there was a thing on the road here that I was, I was, I was having space from. I was defending straight away. God in his sovereignty just went, ah, we're looking at your phone again, Rowan. Something I've been trying to stop doing. Get called out again. Make sure we listen, not just in the trivialities of life, but in all areas our pride, our pleasures. Herod can't do what he wants to do, which is kill John the Baptist, because he's got another fear, and that is the fear of popular opinion. How often do we divert the word of God because we're afraid of what people will think if we actually follow through with it? We're afraid of what we, what we know, what our conscience says is right. Now, he was... Not doing, he was doing, not doing something that was wrong in this. But how often do we let popular opinion shape what we think we ought to do? I don't have those radical views of putting Jesus first in every area. I, I don't say or point people to how amazing Jesus is because I don't want others to think a little less of me. I want to be popular. I want people to like me. I want to be liked. 
Herod won't do what God wants him to do, to repent and give back his wife to his brother. And so he sits in this great tension of not being able to kill him because of popular opinion and then sitting there with him still alive saying these things until an even greater fear arises. And that's the final fear I want us to look at, the fear of irrelevance. Matthew 14, verse 6. When Herod's birthday celebration came, Herodias's daughter danced before them and pleased Herod. So he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Man, what a day to be Herodias's daughter. The king promises to give me whatever I ask. You can imagine the things probably going through a normal daughter's mind. Brilliant. Can I please have a subscription to Disney Plus? Can I please have an, an, an endless vouchers to go to all the great shops that I want to for kind of all the kind of awesome dancing clothes that I want to be able to have? Um, could you please give me uh, uh, the, the promise to say yes to everything I ask for from now on? Like, you know, all the things that are going through her mind. I want endless sleepovers every night with all my friends all the time. Right? You can could, you could imagine what's going on there, but this is not some normal daughter. The dance that she is doing here is not just some innocent jazz ballet piece she learned at after-school jazz classes. While Matthew doesn't explain exactly what the dance was, dancers in the first century were really never seen in a positive light. There's some sort of sexuality and pro promiscuity at the forefront here because she's probably just like her mother. Whatever it was, it pleased Herod so much. He was so enamored with it. So, wow, he said stupidly in front of all his friends and family and all the powers that be, I'll give you whatever you ask. Luke's gospel records that he said he would give up to half his kingdom for this dance. Can you imagine giving a teenager that much power? Can you imagine what she has done to make him be that blubbering, stupid mess? This is not good. There's a sly sultriness here amongst this child who should not be acting this way, but is, and is seducing the king who is now her stepfather to get what her mother wants. Look at verse 8. Prompted by her mother, she answered, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. What a charming girl. <laughs> I want that guy's head on a platter. While she's only a child in this interaction, you, you get a sense of her cooperation, right? See, while the word of God was a threat to Herod's position, it was even more of a threat to Herodias and her daughter because they were in a position of privilege and power because they were now married to the king. Herodias is the wife of the king and now this little princess is in this position of bringing about even more sin. See, friends, the further you go down the hole of sin, the harder it is to get out. Do remember this. The further you go down, the more you continue the lie, the more you rebel against God. You see yourself getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And the more cold-hearted we get to the Word of God. Herodias and her daughter have, have no regard even for Herod. Because of his stupid oath, they corner him in public. The respectful thing to do to your husband here would be to bring up that kind of thing in private, not kind of do it in public. If you're the type of person that brings up with your spouse things in public, come to the marriage day. Like, really, actually come anyway if you're married. 
it'll be really helpful to how you kind of interact with one another and think through how we can respectfully apply the word of God in our interactions as couples. This is how not to do it. Using situations and opportunities to get what we want out of our spouse and silence the word of God. Are you doing that anywhere? Do you find yourself in those interactions within marriage? She was desperate to make sure that this man, John the Baptist, who was a threat to her marriage and her morals, was going to be taken out. And so publicly she embarrasses her husband and king. Verse 9 tells us that although the king regretted it, he commanded that it be granted because of the oaths and his guests. So he sent orders and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought out on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. All this at the same party. What was going on for Herod here? Look at my power. I'm not going to be embarrassed in front of everyone else. I'm going to win this battle with my wife. I'm going to show you. If she wants it, I'll give it. I've said it. It can happen. And so he goes against all his, his kind of fear of, of the crowds and the popularity of the bigger people because he, he doesn't want to be irrelevant. He wants to show the people in the room, I matter. I'm important. I'm in control of my life. Do you see who I am and how powerful I am? You know, This is the only negative picture of women in Matthew's gospel. These two women that we find here, the only one. Every woman that's mentioned in Matthew's gospel in every other part is portrayed positively in light of the kingdom of God. But this woman and her daughter are the only negative images as far as I'm aware. And like Herodias, her daughter resembles the family likeness. She too does not have the fear of God in her heart. Was it... Her fear of her mother that drove her, that she was irrelevant, that she, she sought her mother's approval. I want to be relevant to my mother. I want to show how important I am to our mother. I don't know what your relationship with your mother is like, whether you be men or women. How many daughters have done so many things for the approval of their mother? Killed babies because their mothers are embarrassed by their pregnancy. How many daughters would sacrifice their marriage and put their parents before their partner? How many daughters have sacrificed their faith on the altar of self-esteem and their mother's approval and given up serving Jesus with their whole lives? The only ones in this story that don't seem to have this fear, this irrational fear of their identity, standing on the throne, what other people think of them being relevant is John the Baptist and a few of his followers. Running the risk that they too might be executed, we see in verse 12 that John's disciples came and took his body and buried it and went and told Jesus. John the Baptist, he feared God so much. He treasured God's approval over everyone else, God's opinion so much that he was prepared not only to side with God, even when it involved him being imprisoned and losing his head and going to death, But his disciples did likewise. Makes me think, what would it look like to truly live that way? The irony is for all these people, the fear of irrelevance caused Herod to ignore the word of God, which for eternity to come would render him irrelevant. A king who is a nobody 
no one in the kingdom of God. Because his kingdom would not last. What would it look like to live like John the Baptist and his disciples? It's said that on the tombstone of John Knox, the Scottish reformer, were written these words by those who knew him. They're on the screen. Here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. Here lies one who feared God so much he never feared the face of any man. How amazing would it be to have that written on our tombstones because it was true? <laughs> Let me ask you an even more telling question. Do you want that to be written on your tombstone? Do you want that to be true of your life? See, if you don't live with a fear of God and you live with a fear of man, that's the reality of your life. You can't have both. You either trust God and his word or you live with the fear of man. This whole little story began with Herod. Maybe a month later, there was a little bit of kind of editorial shift happened at the very start of Matthew 14 that told us something that happened after and then took us back to the events. Matthew 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report about Jesus. This is John the Baptist, he told his servants. He's been raised from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Herod is plagued with guilt and regret for his decision of rejecting the word of God through John the Baptist. He hears of the ministry of Jesus. He hears of his power and authority and the miracles and his words and his conscience gets the better of him. He's concluded that John the Baptist has somehow reincarnated, come back from the dead to get him. So self-focused. Herod thinks John the Baptist is the one to fear. He killed the messenger, but it's the word of God that is now pressing on his conscience. The parables and the prophet all pointed to the word of God. So you can cut the head off the messenger of God's word, but you can't cut off God's word. It will come back. God's word will stand. Remember what Isaiah said of God, through, what God said through the prophet Isaiah? Isaiah 55.10. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty. It will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. The word of God is living and active. He speaks into our lives. He's speaking into our lives this morning. And for some of us here today, the fear of man is the reason that we haven't yet come to Jesus. We're worried what others will think. We're worried about getting off the throne of our lives and letting someone else reign and rule it. But it's a far better king. We're worried about trusting our lives to Jesus. For some of us here today, the fear of man is the reason that we've not yet given all our lives to him. They're stopping us from, from growing, really growing to be more like Jesus. We're, we're putting Jesus and his word in a room in our lives and listening occasionally, but then shutting it off and living our lives untouched in some ways. Whether we call it peer pressure or people pleasing or codependency. The bottom line is we are all vulnerable to the fear of man over the fear of God. But imagine if the thing that we were known for, the thing that characterized us as people and as a church, was that these people lived fearing God's word, 
that Auckland EV and the people that went there are a bunch of people who live their lives to an audience of one. Imagine if that's how everyone around us knew what we were like. The fear of man is so infectious. Holds us back from sharing the news of Jesus, from confessing our sins and repenting, from forgiving others, from radical living, from being like Jesus. But this morning we've heard God's word point us to the reality that we need to fear God and his word, for that is what lasts. It's my prayer that, like John Knox, every single one of us in this room would fear the face of God so much that we never fear the face of any man and that we live for the great joy and glory of knowing the King who is in control of all things and letting him run our lives. Let me ask you today, where is God's Spirit prompting you to say, I give my life to you, you are the King? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, that it is living and active. As we come to it, that by your spirit and through it, you convict us, you shape us into the likeness of your son. You show us where we put ourselves at the center of our world and listen to the opinions of everyone but you. And yet true hope and forgiveness and life that lasts forever is found in hearing your word. We pray that today you would, by your spirit, show us where we need to repent. It'd help us to be a, a church of people that lovingly, alongside one another as sinners ourselves, point out how we might keep putting you central in our lives. We pray that you would help us to live boldly as people who've seen the reality that, that Jesus has won, that death has that our sins have been forgiven and that we can live pointing the world around to you. We ask today that by your spirit and through your word, you'd strengthen us to entrust our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.